Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full studio. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hey, Brad. Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Morning, Brad. Glad to have everybody have everyone here because you guys have been traveling a little bit. All of us have been out and about, but we're all here today and we're going to hear about some of your travels. Philip and Dustin just came back from the National Institutes of Animal Agriculture meeting. So they're going to tell us they both presented a little bit there. We'll hear what they presented about. Dustin's got some questions for us. And there's also some discussion on electric fence and what do we want to think about when we're planning for grazing this year. And Bob's going to respond to a listener question. Before we get into those, I mentioned everybody's been traveling, driving a lot. I want to know when you guys, if you stop, you're at the convenience store and you're going to grab something to jump back in the truck and keep rolling. You can grab one thing from the convenience store to eat. What are you going to grab? Ooh, beef jerky. Beef jerky. Um, mine's usually like a Chex Mix kind of stuff, something like that. If it were eating, it's probably... Me, it's probably like a Twix bar or a Reese's peanut butter cup. There you go. Finally, somebody on the candy aisle. I don't know what you guys are doing in the salty area. Yeah. Uh, peanut butter M&M's. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. See, that's kind of healthy because peanut yeah. butter is yeah, healthy. So yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> it's basically healthy. Milk, yeah. chocolate. I mean, <laughs> it's just milk. Yeah. Yeah. Dairy. Yeah. Hey, so Bob, I wanted to follow up with you because we had a, a response. You, you talked the other week about daylight and breeding for cows and we've talked about a lot in horses we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast but in horses they're very seasonal breeders so as the daylight hour increases they're much more likely to breed you mentioned that cattle are also that way and there was a follow-up question can you give us more information on that and is there literature to support that yeah that's it's an interesting phenomenon in that yeah when we think of seasonal breeding horses come to mind uh, sheep come to mind and those species it's it's a really strong effect in that they'll actually become infertile basically for part of the year and cows don't do that cows are fertile year around but that doesn't mean that they're equally fertile and one of the ways we look at that is the length of that period of infertility after they calve and that if they calve when the daylights are shorter so think january february even the first part of march they have a longer period of infertility after they calve than if they calve even just a little bit later say the first of april that time frame and there's actually the earliest paper I found was 1955 that noticed this phenomenon. And there's been papers, you know, every through the decades, there was an important paper in 1973 that identified this phenomenon as well. Uh, but the paper that I was kind of referencing was done out of uh, Nebraska at the Meat Animal Research Center. And they had basically cows calving from about the February 10th through, oh, the, the first part of June not very many past May 1. So most of the cattle were born between March 1 and May 1. And they saw a pretty important difference by when those cows calved, up to basically well, the regression line is 0.6 days. So for every day later that you calve, your period of infertility is a half a day shorter. And that really showed up in that on average, cow, and again, there's a, cows are not all average. But a cow that calved March 1, she averaged a period of infertility of about 75 days before she came back into heat. And again, most cows would fall plus or minus 20 days around that 75. Whereas if she calved April 1st, her period of infertility was only about 55 days. And so that was a 20-day difference in length of infertility for just a 30-day difference in when they calved. So, Bob, I got a question for you. I think you said that earlier that this was done in Nebraska. 
So does the latitude affect that? Because you're talking about calendar days, and day length is different in different latitudes on the same calendar days. Yeah, probably so. Uh, it probably does matter in that I would think that, you know, as you go farther south and there's less of a difference in day length, that that's probably true. One one of those papers that I mentioned, 1973, that was done in, in Montana. And so I would say at least when we look at, say, uh, the middle part of the country, Kansas, Nebraska, and north, you see some, I would at least expect those daylight, day length differences to be more easily detected. And as you move south, maybe less so. But in in that range... We may or may not notice it with what you described. So if I'm calving once a year, it may be hard for me to detect if it's 75 or 85 or 90 days postpartum interval because up to 90 days, I'm okay. If it gets longer than 90, uh, it becomes problematic. I'd say if it gets over 60, it starts to be problematic. So, I mean, for an average. For an average. For an average. Yes. But for an individual cow, which again, nine plus or, pregnancy. Plus or minus 20 days on each side. <laughs> yeah. So... So, so, but there's a, there is an important difference in when you, when you calve, but a lot of us don't notice postpartum intervals. Right. We notice, did she calve mm-hmm. annually? And, and the way I would say this, and, and we think day length is a big part of this. You can also imagine that forage quality is changing a little bit during this time frame. Although, you know, May 1 or uh, March 1 calving is May 20 conception. And we haven't had green grass very long. And by the time we get to April 1, you know, that's a, that's a cow that's been on grass for a while. That's a May, June 20th conception to calve on April 1. And so there could be some forage quality components as well, but, but we think it's mostly day length, but uh, some other a- uh, attributes as well, maybe temperature and other things as well. Excellent. So good feedback there, and we'll put in the show notes, we can list some of those papers that you mentioned in case anybody wants to take a look at those. I also wanted to hear, Philip and Dustin, you guys presented at the NIAA meeting and had some discussions there. Tell us a little bit about what that, what that group does and what you talked about. So the NIAA is the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, and it's I describe it kind of like a think tank. It is bringing all different proteins together, so pork, chicken, beef, dairy together, to talk about issues that are facing all of animal agriculture. And so we talked about, during the meeting, we talked about sustainability issues. We talked about antimicrobial resistance issues. We talked about animal identification, traceability, those kind of things. And so Dustin and I presented in the... I can't know if I get the name of the working group correct here, but basically the emerging animal diseases and um, animal health working group um, in that within the NIAA. Okay, and what did you present on, Philip? So I talked a little bit about kind of big picture how how animal health it could impact sustainability, and then I talked a little bit about our liver abscess data uh, specifically um, from our necropsy project last summer. Yeah, because that's, that's pretty important, and that's one of the things that when we think about liver abscesses or other animal health diseases, if they decrease the health of the animals, that changes our efficiency, which hurts our sustainability, because we've got a lot of resources put into them by that point. Dustin, what you what'd you talk about? So I uh, presented also in the same session as Philip and what one other case stater and one former case stater all from guys from vet school i guess but we talked about the economic burden of animal diseases and i had really kind of three main topics uh, the first one i talked about what is the global burden of animal disease program what it is where it's been and where we're at today with that and then i switched gears and talked about 
kind of looking forward uh, about the possibility of Kansas State University getting a a World Organization for Animal Health, which is WOR, which was founded by OIE originally, about the possibility of us getting a collaborating center here uh, for the economics of animal health. We talked about what that could mean and what that could look like. And then I ended with uh, the possibility of starting to look at, do a national burden of animal diseases here in the United States. And the example I gave was feedlots. You know, can we estimate what the total burden is from an economic standpoint of uh, mortality, morbidities, morbidity in feedlots? And then from there, if we had access to data and these kinds of things, could we attribute that out by the type of disease? So then that would help you prioritize where to do research, where to provide exactly. interventions. Any and that's, that was the whole point of the global burden of animal disease. And what and I'm envisioning this collaborating center in this national is if we know what the burden of all the different diseases are, how can we direct our investments? How can we allocate those limited budgets to where they're needed the most? And Philip told you liver abscess is really and liver abscess is right <laughs> up there. <laughs> yep. That's not how your calculations are going to work, but good starting point. What, what questions, what were some of the main, you guys talked about what you talked about. What were some of the other hot topics or big things that came up at this meeting? So one of the things that they have started is a leadership training program. And so the first group through the leadership training program presented on some capstone projects that they did. And so one of them was on antimicrobial resistance or use of antibiotics and one on an animal identification traceability and then one on sustainability and i'm trying to think i don't know like hot topics but those are the big topics that the the group is really focused on on those three things as long as well as health we didn't have a capstone project on animal diseases and things like that but that's also a big working group within the organization and so those were the the major topics that we talked about in the meeting yeah and i didn't spend much time there i rolled in early in the morning gave my talk and i had to get back to class so i wasn't i didn't I couldn't participate in a lot of the sessions. But I think I think a good opportunity, and I like how you described it, Philip, kind of a think tank. And some of those meetings are great to have broad-level discussions and then go out and figure out where can you fit in, kind of like some of the stuff you're doing, follow-up on liver abscess stuff and some of the stuff that Dustin has looked at relative causes of death. So we want to look forward to hearing more as you guys progress on those projects. And Dustin, I know you've got, not related to that meeting, but you've got some questions for us today. Yes, yeah, so I didn't believe last time we asked some questions, we pulled from the USDA APHIS. Uh, they had in 2017, they had a cow-calf study, the APHIS, the NOMS report. And so we're going to continue following on with that report. When I was out looking at the report itself, it's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of statistics. Well, they have an infographic, and you can see here, it's kind of cool. So it's a lot easier to uh, pull out those statistics. So we're going to ask some questions from this uh, infograph. And this is all about uh, coming back to the cow-calf operations. Cow-calf, when they asked their survey respondents, you know, how would you classify your cattle operation? Commercial only, seed stock only, or a combination of the two? Can you give me what percent do you think respond as a commercial only? I'm going to guess around 80%. 86%. 65%. Yeah, I was going to go more around the two-thirds, so I'm going to say 70%. It's 77, so Bob, and I would have probably guessed probably that as well. So He was over, though. This is just like Price is Right. (laughs) He was over. (laughs) So you need to start one more than whatever the one. (laughs) This is not the price. 6% were seed stock only, and then the other 17% were combined. Yeah. 
Uh, here's another interesting. It's, we're talking about income, sources of income from operation. Uh, so they asked CalCAF operations, you know, is this your primary source of income or is this just a supplemental? And so what percent do you think said this is the primary source of income? CalCAF operations? CalCAF operations. I'm going to say 30%. 21. Is this price right or not? Yeah. I'll go $1, Bob. $1. No, I'm, I'll, I'll say 20%. Yeah. Um, you know, because cattle fits so well in, you know, as, as to complement farming operations and other things, I'm going to say like 10%. Well, price is right. Bob wins because it's uh, 16%. But yeah. Ryan was closest, but price is right. Bob wins. Yeah. <laughs> Bob's on a roll today. Yeah. He is. So, But it's really interesting is if you look at the breakout by the distribution of size of the operation. So when we think about large operations, which are 200 head or more, it's 72%. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get down to the small operations, which is 50 head or less, where it's, it's 8%. It's but there's a lot more of those operations. There's a, there is a lot more of those operations. You are correct. So now we'll talk about preconditioning practices before sales. So the question, one of the questions they asked is, do you castrate your cattle before you sell them? And so just combine all operations, and we'll break it out by size here in a second. What percent of commercial operations castrate their calves before they sell them? All, all operations. Uh, what do? I'll say... Uh, I'll say 85% do. It might go just a little bit below that. Uh, so let's say 70%. I was going to go in the 80% range. I think you guys are all too high. I'm going to go uh, 51%. I was 62, so price is right. <laughs> Brad wins. Now, if you, it's interesting if you look at... By size. By, by size. size. It's 92% on large operations, yeah. 60% on the smaller operations. Yeah. Which should which should be which I makes mean, sense when you tie it with other things we talked about as far as it does make sense and, and you're going to market you're, and we've talked about that before on how it's really important and if we're going to castrate and Brian you and I've talked about this on castrating them early pain management all of those things we don't want to wait till after weaning to do yeah. that so here's another question this is interesting I would have never wouldn't even know what to guess here but uh, what percent of operations provide their buyers with information about their cattle health programs before the sell. Never I think worked. that's pretty low. Yeah. I mean, fifteen percent. Well, it depends on what you consider how how much the information is. But if you say you know from the sale, they had block all the shots. That they had their shots and a little bit of information. I'm going to say thirty percent. Yeah, I don't. Uh, what did you say, Philip? I said fifteen. Said I'll 50. say twenty. I'll say twenty percent. Like you guys are too low on this one. It's fifty-four uh, percent. Well, it's 43, but if we're doing prices right, Bob wins again. (laughs) I'm on a roll today. So we'll ask one more question. So what destination of weaned calves? So choices are where do the calves go once they're weaned? Sale barn, directly to a feedlot, stalker, background, another cow-calf operation, or we'll call it other. You want percentage that go? Yep, do another percent, percentage. They go which way? So I'll, what, I can, I'll start. I can start. I, yeah. I'll guess sixty-five percent go to sale barn. Okay. Yeah, you're darn close on that. I think Brian. I was going to say sixty-eight. Yeah, I think you're probably close. I'll just I'll stick right in there. It's sixty percent. I'm going to say uh, I think it's actually less than that. We've got cattle going on um, video but, auctions and different things like that. So I'm going to say forty percent. Did that but, count? Wait, video wait. auctions. Uh, they don't have that as a, oh. as a, well, as a, a sale barn slash. I guess sale barn. Well, it says sale barn slash auction, I guess. Oh, So okay. it probably does. Okay. Well, I'm sticking with my answer. 
Can I can I change my answer? Because yep. I haven't won yet, so I'm going to say four percent go to directly to the feed yard because yeah, nobody else said anything about the feed yard. What so was yeah. your first? Uh, six, I think I said sixty. And, and you said, I said sixty-eight. I said sixty percent to the auction market. And then I'm I'm so, thinking maybe a quarter of them go directly to grass. Well, how many go? Them. How many go to the auction market first? And well, it's fifty-nine point four. So you're Ooh. over, so you win again. Point six percent. Oh, come on. <laughs> rules is the rules. All right. So feedlot, can anybody guess what goes to the feedlot? Yeah, I'm, I'm with yeah. Brian. It's pretty, Yeah. I'd say 8%. 10%. And yeah, I said 10. 30. 28.9. Wow. That's higher than I thought. No. So those are the questions for this week. Excellent. Thanks, Dustin. Those are those are good. And like you said, that infographic is a little bit easier to go through than the entire document. If you want to look that up, that'll be online. So that was through the APHIS survey or NOM survey. Yes. So USDA NOMS, if you Google USDA NOMS CalCAF, I bet you can find that infographic or we'll put a link in the show notes. So last topic I wanted to hit, it's that time of year where we're getting animals out going to grazing we talked about pasture turnout last time i want to talk a little bit about and depending on the region the country and the type of grass you may be managing that grass a little bit differently I and mean, sometimes we use uh, electric fence or cross fencing to be more efficient with our pasture grazing so philip i wanted to turn to you initially for some is that a good idea or not or what are some of the benefits of potentially cross fencing and and not every pasture but some of our pastures well i think it's a good idea i mean there becomes some logistical issues when you get into larger operations of trying to do those kind of things but um if water yeah well i mean water well and even if i got to string several miles of electric fence in one direction just to get across the pasture that becomes you know an issue but if possible i think it's a good thing to manage your grazing much better um with that because permanent fences are good um, permanent cross fences are good um, but they aren't flexible and so when you first put them in you're making a guess that okay here's where i'm going to put it here's where i think it should go and here's you know i'm going to rotate cows this way and then when you actually start doing it, you're probably going to find things that you want to change. And it's much more difficult to change them with permanent fence than it is with an electric fence. So the temporary nature of electric fence makes the flexibility in your system much greater. And, and there's year-to-year variation, right? Oh, yes. In, in the grass quality and quantity, but having cross fences lets me kind of dictate where and when I want them to graze a little bit better. Yeah, and so grazing different parts of the pasture at different times of year, not the same um, sequence of grazing every single year is good for the pasture, for the grasses. But also, like you said, I'm going to go out there. If I'm going to lay it out in my brain, I am initially going to lay out pastures of all the same size. Well, my forage productivity is not the same across the whole ranch and so i need to probably vary the sizes of those pastures um just from a a management perspective that way but then also i really need to vary them throughout different times of the year the grasses need a longer rest period going especially cool season grasses going into the warmer months of july and august and so i need to have more smaller paddocks so each paddock gets a longer rest period before i come back to it so i may need to move them around move those fences which if i've got a reel and wire and some step-in posts 
pretty easy to do. If I've got a permanent cross fence, pretty hard to vary the size mm -hmm. very much. So, so Bob, when we think about this grazing and this pattern, what from a nutrition standpoint do you like about confining them to a smaller area, and what do you not like about it? Well, there's, uh, I think it's really about, and, and Philip really said this, it's about utilization of the forage that's available. And uh, by confining cattle into smaller areas, a lot of times they're like we are. They will consume the most palatable plants first. And, and so in a multi-species uh, type of a pasture, a lot of times we want them to, to be more um, uniform with their grazing. And so by holding them in an area, they'll, they'll eat some of the less palatable uh, forages, and that's actually good for the overall biodiversity and then we move them on to another there, there's some negatives one you know the logistics of making sure that they have water make sure they have mineral because now you start talking about moving them well i'm gonna have to move the mineral to where the cattle are i've got to make sure that we have access to to water and you know so there's there's the logistics that make it challenging but the the, the benefit really is that better utilization of the forage i i own so many acres of of grass and i really would like the cows to use as much of that as possible well, I think you have a very good point there, the utilization of the forage, because it, it to me, management intensive grazing or rotational grazing or whatever you want to call it, is not necessarily about improving individual animal performance. The big gain is the animals consume a higher percentage of the forage that's produced, so my carrying capacity goes up. Or my number of hay feeding days goes down, depending on how I want to manage it as far as number of animals out there. Just follow up on Bob. One more negative thing to keep in mind is, in addition to the water and the mineral, you need to check the fences every once in a while because I've seen deer run through them, uh, tree limbs fall down and knock them out. And so, you, yeah, you just got to make sure you... Yeah. You have to have a... a different perspective than when you've got a permanent fence up that they're going to get out sometimes and you just put the fence back up and go forward rather than if they get out and so interior fences makes perfect sense exterior fences probably not a temporary electric fence and so one of the things you mentioned that talking to somebody in iaa just meaning that there are some technologies out there that they have sensors on the fence that can now send you a signal to your phone and tell you the fence is short now. Yeah, yeah we have that, too. It's called a gate. <laughs> See if it still works. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it's shorted. But out. You've got, that, but one, you've got it, that one insulator agree, that's broken. I agree with Dustin. I grew up with electric fence stuff, and we it was not daily, but almost daily. The deer would knock it down, break it. it there is some labor involved with it beyond just putting it up that people need to consider when they do it. Absolutely. Good point. And, and I think one of the things, and, and you kind of mentioned this early on, Philip, but we're talking about where they're grazing. I think sometimes it's important where they're not. That rest on the pasture, it's just fencing them out of an area gives that pasture time to recover, whereas otherwise they'll keep going back to their favorite spots and the whole pasture doesn't ever get a recovery period. So consider that for your operation, depending on where you are. And appreciate you guys' feedback, and thanks for going to some of those meetings and talking about some of the issues that are important to the animal ag industry. We've enjoyed having you with us today, and as always, if you have thoughts, questions, or things you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.